All right, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part two of True Age by Dr. Morgan Levine. In this episode, I discuss how to measure biological age. After listening to part one, I hope I conveyed to you the importance of knowing your own biological age. Because aging is so complex and multifaceted, there are many ways to measure your biological age. Probably one of the simplest ways to estimate aging is at the functional level using a measure of what she likes to call deficit accumulation. So aging is not just linked to a increasing immediate risk of developing a major chronic disease or condition, but in fact, it increases the immediate risk of developing multiple conditions simultaneously. And this is what we call comorbidities or multimorbidity. The deficit accumulation measure is a count of the diseases and or high-risk conditions that a person has. One of the examples of these measures has come to be known as the frailty index. This started around the early 2000s and was developed by a man named Dr. Kenneth Rockwood, as well as another mathematician, Dr. Arnold Matinsky. They demonstrated that by estimating the proportion of potential deficits presented in an individual, one could produce a fairly reliable aging estimate. Essentially, this variable was able to capture the state of a person's functional aging, which is a good indicator of vulnerability to future disease and or death. The best thing about this frailty index too was that it was completely non-invasive. So how does the frailty index work? Well, you can think of the frailty index as having three different columns. So the far left column, you have disease. In the middle, you have functioning. And on the right, you have lab test. So for the disease column, he asks, have you ever been diagnosed with one of the following? And you would give yourself one point for each yes answer. So some of the diseases are type 2 diabetes, CHF, coronary heart disease, angina, heart attack, AFib, stroke, stuff like that. And you would give yourself one point every time you answer yes. In the middle column of functioning, he asks, without help or special equipment, how much difficulty do you have with the following? So he gives options like walking a quarter mile, walking up 10 steps, lifting, carrying 10 pounds, walking between rooms. And so you would give yourself a score there. And on the far right column is the lab test. He asks, at your most recent doctor visit and blood draw, did you fall within the following categories? And again, he gives you options here. Triglycerides greater than 150, HDL less than 40, LDL greater than 160, systolic blood pressure greater than 130, fasting blood glucose greater than 100, and albumin less than 3.4. Again, you're going to add up your points for the three categories and then divide by 34. You're going to get a score and it's going to give you a range from very fit to severely frail. So again, you add up your points in this test uh, frailty index and then you can divide by 34. It's going to give you a score from very fit to well to managing, vulnerable, mildly frail, moderately frail, and then severely frail. One of the drawbacks with deficit accumulation measures like the one I presented to you is that it's not very good when it comes to people preventing disease or extending health span. For instance, they don't differentiate the health or wellness of people who have yet to develop a disease and can really only be used to track aging once diseases and conditions have started to manifest. And you know, on here on HealthSpan podcast, we're all about prevention here. So it's not, it doesn't do the best job of kind of telling people who are, have yet to develop a disease 
but can really only track aging once these conditions have occurred, like CHF, diabetes, having aberrations in blood work like high triglycerides and stuff like that. So this was just a start. The frailty index was just a start. It was in the early 2000s, but now we have better testing currently. The next testing I wanted to talk about was the telomere length. If you listened to the previous podcast or some of my earlier podcasts, you know what the telomeres are. These are the shoelace tips at the end of your DNA. In the early 2000s, a new measure emerged which gave scientists hope that the quest for a way to estimate biological aging was finally over. Of course, I'm talking about measuring the telomere length. Just to review, over time, it was shown that as cells divide or encounter instances of stress and or damage, the protective caps of our chromosomes are shortened or degraded. These telomeres become shortened and degraded, potentially inducing programmed cell death. We call this apoptosis or cellular arrest. We call this senescence. More and more cells experiencing severe telomere attrition in one or more chromosomes can contribute to cellular loss and jeopardize tissue integrity. Ultimately, severe telomere shortening and accompanying cellular senescence are thought to contribute to the etiology of age-related diseases and decline. Remember, telomere attrition is one of the hallmarks of aging. And we're seeing here that over time, these telomeres become shorter and shorter, end up becoming degraded, and can contribute to the damage of our DNA and ultimately our aging process. Back in 2004, a professor of psychiatry at UC San Francisco, her name is Dr. Alyssa Eppel, joined forces with Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who I mentioned last episode, and they together published a groundbreaking study providing the first demonstration of the utility of telomere length in health research. In their paper, both Apple and Blackburn showed that psychological stress was associated with shorter telomere length in white blood cells. So simple psychological stress, stuff like anxiety, just stress in general, is causing shorter telomere length. The team argued that telomere attrition may be the missing biological link connecting the stress we all experience to our health and wellness. The hope was that telomere length could serve as a biomarker of aging that would help researchers better understand the root causes of differences in health and disease risk across populations. The year after Elizabeth Blackburn received her Nobel Prize, She founded the Telomere Diagnostics Company, and a few drops of blood are collected via fingerprint prick using a lancet similar to the ones diabetics use. And then the blood spot sample is then shipped to a lab where the telomere length is measured. Unfortunately, as the data started to pour in on the association between telomere length measures in white blood cells, we call this LTLs or leukocyte telomere length, The links between LTLs and health span or lifespan were actually very disappointing. Again, this leukocyte telomere length appeared to exhibit fairly weak associations with age. For most groups of people, age explained less than a quarter of the variation LTLs, suggesting that these leukocyte telomere lengths did not track aging very well at all. Here's another problem. The measures of LTL that were being applied to these cohorts ended up being Unidimensional averages. So what do I mean by unidimensional averages? What I mean by this is that think of every cell in your blood has two telomeres per chromosome. With 23 chromosome pairs, that's 46 in total, 
This equates to essentially 92 telomeres per cell. Using a simple finger prick method can only really collect about 20 microliters of blood from a single droplet. And this is about 100,000 to 200,000 white blood cells. That's about 10 million telomeres. Not all of the telomeres in a sample are the same length. Some are very short and some remain long, even in older individuals. The likelihood of a telomere is longer or shorter is also biased by what kind of white blood cell it is it's found in. So telomere length is more likely to be shorter in cells that are rapidly dividing and replace themselves. So I hope you understand this is that when we look at a finger prick, we get a cumulative average of 100 to 200,000 white blood cells. And the problem is not all these white blood cells are the same telomere length. Some are really short, some are really long. It depends on the state of the cell. It it's kind of stands on maybe you know how fast they're dividing. So the point is there's a huge discrepancy between the telomere length and it's just taking the average of all these telomeres. Again, as she writes here, unfortunately, the measure of LTL takes the average across all 10 million or so telomeres in your sample. This ignores a lot of potential insightful information. Another important question being overlooked is which cell types are exhibiting faster sh shortening, or which chromosomes for that matter. Without these answers, telomere length measures may only give you a fuzzy picture of what is really going on among your cells. For this reason, measures that capture dynamic shifts across distinct yet connected systems will be much more useful for determining one's personal aging profile. In other words, instead of just looking at your white blood cells, why don't we look at our entire system? Why don't we look at our entire body holistically? And this is transitioning us to the multi-system aging measures. So in 2008 and 18, Morgan Levine published an aging measure that combines multidimensional information from lab tests meant to capture functioning in various physiologic systems. There were nine measures that go into an equation that together combined information on physiologic states from a number of systems, including the cardiovascular system, immune system, your liver, your kidney, and metabolic system, and then combine, combines these systems to generate an overall biological age measure for the person. So this is a little confusing. Let me explain a little more. The nine blood measures used to estimate phenotypic age were chosen out of a panel of nearly 50 possible tests. When independently, independently tested, phenotypic age was able to predict who would survive the next 10 years and who wouldn't with approximate 90% accuracy without having to know anything else about the person. So what are these nine different tests that she is measure, measuring? So the, it is the following. So fasting glucose, C-reactive protein, albumin, alkaline phosphatase, creatinine, red cell distribution width, lymphocyte percentage, white blood cell count, and mean corpuscular volume. These are the nine distinct lab tests that capture different systems in our body, including immune, metabolic, inflammatory, liver, and kidney. So you're going to get a score and let's say you get a score that you weren't happy with. Remember, as I mentioned last episode, that biological aging is malle malleable. And her exciting finding was that what seemed to be the biggest determinant of a 
person's biological age was their health behaviors. So just not, not the, not just the like, um, your genetics, but really the health behaviors that you're having. The second biggest contributor were recent stressors and uh, adverti- um, recent stressors and like adversities going on, followed by genetics as third. So genetics is way down the list. My point is, biological aging is malleable, and it's in your hands to figure out how to to reverse your biological age. Now, the next couple of episodes that I'm going to be doing in the future, I go into great detail about what you can do to slow down your biological aging. But just to give you a sneak peek, Dr. Morgan Levine collaborated with a longtime colleague, Dr. Walter Longo, who again wrote the Longevity Diet book, which you can check out. I did a podcast on that. She collaborated with Dr. Walter Longo to test if they could actually reduce someone's biological age by changing their dietary behaviors. They found that people who participated in three short fasts spread out over a few months were able to significantly reduce their biological age by an average of 2.5 years. This is just one example of many that I'm going to give in future episodes. But for now, I'm going to continue on how to measure our biological age. So I talked about the frailty index. I talked about this multi-systems aging measure approach. Now I'm going to discuss epigenetic age. If you remember from last episode, epigenetics refers to the chemical alterations that are occurring on your genome and helps regulate which part of the genome are being used and which aren't being used. These, remember, are the chemical tags that are being put onto our DNA, stuff like methylations and acetylations. DNA methylation, again, refers to a chemical tag called the methyl group that is added to one of the nucleotides or letters in the DNA sequence. They also can methylate certain regions. They're called CPGs. And these CPGs are scattered throughout our genome. And when methyls are added to these CPGs, this will typically cause part of the genome to fold in on itself and quote-unquote turn off. And the genes in that region are temporarily unreachable. When methyl groups are removed, however, the region opens opens back up and becomes available again. So just to quickly recap, you have a methyl group. It's a type of tag. It's a type of signal that gets put on your DNA. So you get a tag put on your DNA, and then oftentimes it'll close off. So the DNA will close off. It won't be able to get read, and it won't be able it won't be able to get transcribed or translated into proteins. Now, studies into DNA methylation have revealed that the pattern of these chemical tags throughout your genome becomes substantially altered as we age. Certain sites consistently consistently gain DNA methylation while others lose DNA methylation. Now, just a brief history on the methylation and how this was discovered. The profound impact of aging on the patterns of DNA methylation were first discovered in the late 1980s and then early 1990s. One of the scientists working in this area, her name was Dr. Nita Ahuja, She was a recent graduate of Duke Medical School and completed her residency at uh, Johns Hopkins, and now she's currently the chief of surgery at Yale Medical School. Early in her career, Dr. Ahuja and others showed that DNA methylation patterns that seem to distinguish cancerous tissues from most normal tissues bore striking similarity to the changes observed in normal tissues with aging. 
And then it took another two decades before the first biological age measure based on DNA methylation would be developed. So this was back in 2011. In 2011, at UCLA, they published the first example of a type of measure that would later come to be known as the quote-unquote epigenetic clock. This was led by a professor, Dr. Eric Villain, and he initially designed this epigenetic clock to identify certain epigenetic factors in saliva that related to sexual orientation when comparing uh, discordant twins. A year after Dr. Eric Villain discovered this epigenetic clock, there was another group of researchers at USC led by Dr. Kang Zhang and Dr. Trey Eidecker, um, sorry, not USC, UC San Diego, who developed the second DNA methylation age predictor. They called this the Hanum clock. It had a slower, at a lower error rate than the original clock that was developed. And around the same time that clock was developed, there was another one being developed. And this one would end up going on to being the most uh, changing, you know, the most uh, prolific kind of clock out there. And this is the Horvath clock that we all are familiar with. So Steve Horvath from UCLA decided to drop everything in his lab and pursue the study of DNA methylation changes with age. And so Morgan, Morgan Levine, while training for her PhD at USC in 2014, came across Dr. Horvath's new published paper on this epigenetic clock. And just that past summer, she had published a paper that described a new biological age measure she had developed using like lab measures that I talked about earlier. And she found it really amazing that a similar aging signal could be written in the molecular profile of a cell. In other words, how do these chemical tags that are being put on these methyl groups influence the way our biological aging is, is getting measured? And at that moment, she decided that there were so many questions that needed to be answered. Like, how did this happen? What did it mean? Is, is this able to be modifiable? A year later, she moved across town from USC to UCLA to start a postdoc with Dr. Steve Horvath. And over the next few years, Steve Horvath and Dr. Morgan Levine published several, several studies detailing all the things the epigenetic clock could capture. They showed that women with older epigenetic ages tended to experience menopause earlier and that surgical menopause tended to accelerate epigenetic aging. They also found that epigenetic aging was predictive of future risks of lung cancer, especially among smokers. Using samples from the brain, they found that individuals with signs of Alzheimer's disease tended to have older epigenetic ages relative to their chronological ages. And Morgan Levine, along with one of her graduate students, published a paper showing the associations between health behaviors and epigenetic aging, revealing that people who ate more leafy greens, exercised, and had higher education tended to be epigenetically younger. So their epigenetic age was younger than their own chronological age. There are some other findings that they, they found as well. So they ended up showing that this new clock was a much better predictor for the myriad health outcomes when compared to previously developed chronological age clocks. It was strongly associated with remaining lifespan, tracked the number of diseases a person had accumulated, and reflected differences in physical and cognitive functioning. Again, it showed that higher um, and the epigenetic age was higher in women who had gone under early menopause. It showed acceleration in individuals with obesity and metabolic syndrome. 
and it also captured age-related pro-inflammatory processes. This suggested that there was deceleration in children of supercentenarians and was shown to be higher in individuals with certain diseases like HIV, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and also breast cancer. So this is truly remarkable. We're seeing this association between diseases and the rate at which biological aging. And again, people with these diseases like Alzheimer's, HIV, Parkinson's, their epigenetic age was always way faster than how much they, how what, what their actual age was, their chronological age. So I'm going to move forward and talk about the future of personalized aging. So I'm gonna move forward here to the next section. Okay. Okay, so do our genes dictate our natural path? In July of 2020, an experiment led by Dr. Nan Hao from UC San Diego, again, beautifully illustrated the idea that individuals can take different paths when it comes to aging. So instead of looking at humans, Dr. Hao was looking at Saccharomyces, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. These are just yeast, budding yeast. The researchers were able to trap the yeast in a, in a device, a microfluidic device, so that each individual could be studied over time. By tracking two biological changes over a yeast cell's life course, the team was able to show that despite being genetically identical, the yeast tended to take one of two aging paths, which resulted in two distinct phenotypes of old yeast. So again, we're looking at these Saccharomyces and we're seeing that when we put, when we put them in the microfluidic device, these mice or these yeast tend to undergo different pathways of biological aging. The first mode of aging was exhibited by degradation in the nucleolus. So again, we have two paths, and the first path is the degradation of the nucleolus. When you look at a cell, the cell has a nucleus along with organelles. Inside the nucleus is the nucleolus, which contains ribosomes. Those ribosomes are needed for manufacturing of proteins. That this point's not important, but just letting you know that over time, the nucleoli in these yeast cells would become enlarged and fragmented, causing epigenetic instability in the ribosomal DNA, leading to age-related decline and eventually death. So that, that again, is the first path of aging. The second distinct path involved mitochondrial decline due to loss of heme slash iron. Now, what was particularly interesting and surprising about the study was that each individual yeast tended to only exhibit one of these two age-related signatures, either the nucleoli de degradation or the mitochondrial degradation. It wasn't that they were both declining in both features equally, but rather they were making some sort of unconscious decision to maintain one feature over another. While these yeast cells were essentially genetically identical, some potentially random process was determining how each would age. But what would happen if you started out with genetically diverse yeast? So again, we were looking at the same yeast population. What if you started out with different yeast population? Building on decades of aging research in yeast, the team generated mutant yeast strains by manipulating two genes either the SIR2 gene or the HAP4 gene. Now, what they found was that these two separate mutations, the SIR2 and HAP4, appeared to bias cells towards opposing aging phenotypes. For instance, when the team deleted the SIR2 gene, about 83% of the yeast exhibited the first mode of aging, the nucleoli destabilization, 
Conversely, when the team deleted the HAP4 gene, nearly 90% of these yeasts exhibited the mode of type, the second type of aging, the low abundance of heme and mitochondrial dysfunction. As a third experiment, rather than deleting SIR2 or HAP4, the scientists forced the cells to overexpress one of these two genes. So we're increasing the expression instead of knocking out these genes. Activation of the HAP4 biased cells towards uh, mode 1 aging, yet activation of SIR2 created two different tendencies. So it increased the likelihood of mode 2 aging, the heme iron mitochondrial dysfunction, but also led to an entirely new mode of aging that hadn't been observed. So cells occupying this third mode tended to be very long-lived and were able to moderately maintain more youthful features in both pathways, so both the nucleoli and mitochondrial pathway. I know this is a lot of information and may be a little confusing, but the point is, these scientists were manipulating genes, they were overexpressing genes, or they were knocking out certain genes, like SIR2 and HAP4, and they were showing that these yeasts would go different routes in the way they aged, either a nucleoli route or the mitochondrial degradation route. Overall, this beautiful experiment showed that shows us that cellular aging can be thought of as a fate decision process. Individual organisms determine earlier in their aging process which path to take, or more accurately, accurately which systems to maintain at the expense of others. Unfortunately, this determines what aging characteristics the individual will exhibit as they grow old. And again, this, is, this was a study done in yeast, but we can kind of apply this to humans. We may go down a different path, like getting cardiovascular disease rather than Alzheimer's. And it just kind of goes to show that this can be manipulated with uh, genes. And, and it's also more kind of like this aging process can often be like predestined early, like in our lives. We can kind of go down this different path and we're kind of in a certain fate. But again, remember, we have a lot of that fate in our own hands. So deciding your own path. If a person's genotypic age has the potential to bias them towards one aging path or the other, is there anything we can do to, that can be done to intervene? The answer, of course, is yes. Your genes are not your destiny, and there is no predestination when it comes to aging. So the next couple of episodes, I do a deep dive into what you can do specifically in your life to help slow the biological aging. So that'll be the next part, and that's all about taking control. Again, stuff you can do to slow your own biological aging. This is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you tune in next time so we can discover more ways to slow our biological aging. And again, you can feel free to message me on Instagram. I always respond to my comments and, and DMs, so feel free to message me. Again, I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and thank you for listening.